Didn't scare everybody away with my mountain of paperwork the first day at least. So, All right, so we have, I told that you know last time I will keep up on the board. I will have the assignments and their rough due dates. They might change depending on uh, assignments and other things, cancellations or whatever, you know, hopefully not too many, but you know, we've had plenty of cancellations in the fall term due to flooding and hurricanes and all sorts of stuff the last couple of years. So you never know. But as of right now, extra credit assignment is due on Monday. Uh, it's the one I gave out last time for the iTunes subscription and then sending me an email. I know about four or five of you are already done with that and have the extra credit points added. If you haven't yet, you can continue that up through uh, through Monday of next week. Your first solar observation, I want you to get one by the end of next week. So that gives you almost two full weeks to try to get me one, just one day's observation. And again, if you've looked at the calculations, you don't need to worry about any of that right now. All I need for this is you to turn in me the date you observed, the time, hopefully around 1.15, uh, the sky conditions, how tall your object was, and how long your shadow was. That's all I need there. I'll take a look at them. I'll do the calculations myself and find out if you're on the right track or not and hopefully let you know that way when you come back after uh, Labor Day break, which would be right after that, when we come back on the third, and then I'll let you know how that's, how that's going. If we get through the first two chapters well these next two weeks, uh, the first quiz will be scheduled for the following for the Labor Day weekend. And you can take that any time there. And then the homework one that I gave you last time, Sign in for me. Uh, homework one that I gave you last time. I thought about the Friday, but I decided just to go ahead and make sure we're through everything fully and have not, you not have to turn that in until after the Labor Day weekend. So you can turn that in through the third, which is the day we come back, the Wednesday we come back two weeks from today. And then I'm looking at exam one or no second day. Exam, I do since I do four exams. Exam one. If everything goes well, which I'm really hoping, I'm hoping it'll be the 8th of September, uh, mainly because I won't be here. I, have, I, got, I got jury duty selection, so I will not be here that day for sure, and I don't know about the rest of the week. But hoping at least that day, instead of having somebody else come in and lecture for you, it's easier to have somebody else come in and give you an exam. So you're not trying to process information the way I give it to you, that you get used to for the first couple weeks, then all of a sudden changing. So I'm leaning towards the 8th, but I'm not official on that yet. If we don't get through the first three chapters, of course, it will not be, be then. Any questions on anything there? No, no, no. All righty. Well, picture of the day for today. This is a um, little bit different than what we looked at last time. Last time we saw a picture taken from the surface of the Earth. Now we're looking at a picture taken I mean, directly from the surface of the Earth with like a camera. Here is one we're looking taken with a telescope, a much more, much higher powered telescope. What is this? This is actually a Hubble Space Telescope picture. So it was not taken from the surface of the Earth. It was taken from a few hundred miles up above the Earth's surface and up above the Earth's atmosphere. So therefore, not having to look through clouds and everything else and glare and city lights in the atmosphere, actually being able to look through and see fine detail in the center of this nebula. Now the Lagoon Nebula is the kind of thing we'll be talking about in a couple of months when we get to star formation and talk about how stars form because this is a region that we're of star formation. Just sign in for me too. Uh, it is a region where stars are currently forming. Does that mean we can sit there and watch it over the next couple over this semester and see new stars form? Unfortunately, no. 
Uh, star formation is a very slow process. Fast astronomically speaking, it's very slow for us. It'll take them hundreds of thousands to millions of, to millions of years to form. So if we come back in hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years from now, we'd see a whole bunch of new stars that have formed out of this gas and dust that is around here. But that's very slow astronomically speaking because we tend to talk about many things in terms of many, many hundreds of millions or billions of years in terms of time frames. So it's relatively quick astronomically speaking, but to us, you know, for a human lifespan of what, 70, 80, 90 years, that's, you know, we're just a little flash compared to that, or that. That's many, many generations for the stars to actually form. Now we see a couple of things here. We see a very couple very bright stars that are starting to break out of the cocoons where they formed, the dust clouds. We see a lot of other very faint stars around here. These are stars that are still shrouded in a lot of dust. And the reason way astronomers know that is because if you look at a couple of these, especially right on the edge of this very dark dust cloud, means there's a lot of material there blocking out all the light from behind it. These ones on the very edge look very red. They're very red in color. And dust has a good tendency to redden the light that passes through it. It's very good at scattering out all the blue lights. The blues and the greens all disappear. And what's left are the reds and the oranges. So when the starlight has to pass through a lot of dust, it looks very red. And that's what we're seeing here. So we know that these are probably really very bright stars. And once they break out, once they actually push away enough dust, they'll look more like this. So if we could come back a million years from now, instead of seeing this dust cloud, we'd see a whole bunch of stars, a small star cluster that had actually formed out of this nebula. Again, got to come back in a couple million years for that. So with our lifespans, not something that we'll be able to see directly. But we can look at all the different stages. And that's the way we'll do it when we get to later chapters, is we'll look at all different parts of the star formation process in different areas to really be able to, to see that. All right, so that's where we'll get started. Questions? Again, we're jumping a little bit ahead there. Sometimes we jump behind. Sometimes we'll go back and talk about something. Just depends on what picture happens to be up there for, for the day. No. I think that's just about everybody now. All righty, well, let's go ahead and get started on chapter zero then. And we'll start here. Uh, chapter zero, which your textbook is the one that decides instead of starting with chapter one, it's starting with chapter zero. Uh, it's, it's got a lot of information in this chapter. I'll go through some of it briefly here through the PowerPoint. And there's a lot more to look at in, in the textbook. So I'm not going to be able to go through everything. Uh, other some other courses, you might spend two or three chapters on the material that we cover, we cover in, this, in this section. Um, this is your textbook there, just mentioned last time. It is the Beginner's Guide to the Universe, 7th edition is what we're using, what we're using right now for, for the class. And what we're going to look at in this chapter are a number of different things, sort of the basic view of the universe and how things appear to move in the sky. Now, start off here with a nice, pretty image taken here, closer to what we had the first time, except we're not seeing the trails of the stars, we're just seeing the stars themselves. So we have an image taken here, Earth, four scenery in the foreground, and our Milky Way galaxy in the back, along with a lot of star, number of stars near, nearby. Uh, that's just the kind of scene that you'll get, not if you look out around here at night, because the sky gets a little bit bright 
if you're in Harrisburg or surrounding areas, really does a good job of brightening up the sky. And you lose the Milky Way, much too, much too faint to be able to see when, the, see when the sky gets too bright. Lots of these stars, very hard to see. But most of the brighter ones you can still pick out even, from a, even with the brighter lights of this, air, of this area. So what we're really going to look at in this chapter is a number of things like that. We're going to look at you know, the different motions, how the Earth is moving. You know, we're moving right now rather quickly if you want to think about it. I mean, we're zipping around in a whole bunch of different motions, a whole bunch of different ways right now all at once. Even though it doesn't feel like it because we're moving, the building's moving, the Earth's moving, the sun's moving, everything's all moving at once and we're all moving together so it doesn't feel like we're moving. But when we look at some of the speeds at which we're moving, it's pretty tremendous to, to think about. So the units of this chapter, just to break them down, we're going to look at, first of all, sort of a general overview is just how we see the sky. When we go out and look at the sky, what do, what do we see? And what is, you know, what is obvious to us when we go out and look at the sky? And what are the basic units that astronomers use to be able to make measurements of the sky, to be able to determine positions, to determine motions? Then we're going to look at the Earth. The Earth's orbital motion, the Earth has two motions overall. It has a rotational, it's we spin on our axis once a day, and it has a revolution. It spins around, moves around the sun once every year. So there's two motions going on simultaneously, and those give us units of time that we're very familiar with. Right? Our rotation is once every day, 24 hours a day is how long it takes the Earth to spin once on its axis. Our year, 365 and a quarter days, is how long it takes the Earth to go around the sun one time. So gives us time, but those times and calendars are all related astronomically to the Earth's motion, how the Earth orbits the sun and how the Earth spins on its axis. We'll then look at the moon. The motion of the moon, we'll come back and talk about the moon a little bit more detail when we do our unit on the planets. But we'll actually look at the motions of the moon, the phases, we'll talk about eclipses and how, the, how those occur. We actually do have we have a lunar eclipse coming up in about a month and a half that will be visible here. Uh, October 8th will actually be a lunar eclipse and I'll mention that again. I'll remind you a little bit closer as, as well. So we'll look at that. We'll look at eclipses. Um, then we'll start on the measurement of distances. It's an important unit for the, uh, thing for this class. We're going to be looking at distances, how far away things are. You know, we're used to being able to measure distances pretty easily. Grab a tape measure, right? If you're measuring your solar observations, grab a ruler or a tape measure or something to measure them. Measuring distances in astronomy is very hard. We've traveled out in space a minuscule fraction of the universe. You know, we have, we've barely, we finally, finally in the last year or two, we've broken out of our solar system. We've gotten to the edge of the sun's influence in space and actually got out into interstellar space with one of the Voyager probes. Finally, its last readings are actually that it's out beyond the solar system. But that's about as far as we've gotten. Not even close, not even a tiny fraction of the way to the nearest star. So how do we measure it? We can't go send a probe there and, you know, what does your odometer say when you get there? How far did you travel? So we're going to have to look at a whole bunch of ways of measuring distances to be able to determine not just within the solar system, but also to measure distances to stars, distances to galaxies, and other, dist other objects in the universe. 
So we're going to start off with that, but you'll see the distance uh, theme coming back over and over through the rest of the course. And then finally we'll finish up probably by Friday, we'll finish the last couple sections on science and the scientific method and talk about how, what about different types of scientific theories and how we go about actually test testing theories, how we go about testing theories. Alright, so let's get started here. A couple of nice images, a bunch of nice images here to the side. All these are, are zooming out. You may have seen, if you've ever watched, I didn't bother to play the old Powers of 10 video, but if you've ever seen the old Powers of 10 video in high school that they like to show where you zoom out from a person sitting on the bench and it zooms out to the edges of the universe and then back inside. This is kind of a similar thing in just a couple of pictures going back from our scale. There's, uh, there's, there's us looking at a comet out there in space. If we zoom out, how many times? 10 million times? We get out to the diameter of the Earth. So 10 million times larger than what we're seeing here on average. We're going out to about the size of the Earth. If we zoom out another million times, we get out to our, our solar system. 100 million times to the galaxy. Another 10,000 times we're looking at you know, the observable universe. The whole idea there, it makes it look like we're something special and for a long time we thought we were. You know? Thousands of years ago we were the center of the universe. I've already told you that we're moving. I'll give you some numbers later as to how fast we're moving. But it doesn't feel like it. If you go out and stand outside, does it feel like we're spinning on our axis? Does it feel like the whole earth is whipping around the sun? No, because we're moving, the atmosphere is moving, the earth is moving, everything's moving at once. We don't notice those incredible velocities. So it wasn't that bad of a thing that you know, ancient astronomers and peoples thought that we were the center of the universe. It sure seems like it. Go out there and sit out there at night, lay down, watch the stars. What are they doing? They're moving around you. They're orbiting around you. It sure looks like it. It took us many thousands of years to really be able to realize um, you know, until the 1400s really, late 1400s into the 1500s that the Earth really isn't anything special. We don't have any special place in the universe. We're one planet and you could actually go to another planet and get very similar views essentially of the, of the universe. You could go to another star system and get the same, same view. Things you'd be able to see. It wouldn't look all that different at least in general. The general properties would essentially be the same regardless of where you are in the universe. So Earth is special because it's got all of us. But other than that it's just one planet and it doesn't have any special location in the universe. Speaking of that, what is the universe? Well, universe is everything. So it's got all space, all time, all matter, all energy, everything put together. So if you want to talk about other universes, which they sometimes do, it's really not using the term correctly because a universe really is everything that we have. Everything that we can see. So everything that we study in this class will be part of, is part of the universe. Different galaxies, different planets, different stars are all part of our universe, which is everything. And that's what astronomy, again, is studying. Now the difference is that the scales are tremendous. So we have to use a couple other set of units, sets of units. I think I've got everybody signed in now. Let's get rid of that. We have to use a couple other set of units. One is light years. A 
A light year, regardless of having year in its name, is a distance. And it is the distance light travels in one year. Light travels at about 186,000 miles per second, about 300,000 kilometers per second, extremely fast. Very, very high speed. So it can travel a tremendous distance, 10 trillion miles in one year. Try to imagine 10 trillion miles, you can't, right? Can you imagine 10 trillion anything? Pretty much not. The number is just beyond what we, what we can comprehend as humans. You know, 10 trillion is just not a number we can understand. If it was 10 miles, yeah, you know, you've, you've driven 10 miles, walked 10 miles, biked 10 miles. You know, people have done something. You have an idea of 10 miles. But can you imagine doing that a trillion times? Well, the trillion is still way too, it's way too big. It's beyond what you can possibly imagine. So we use that, we use the light year as a scale really to bring the numbers down so that we can talk instead of the nearest star as being 43 trillion miles away. We say it's 4.3 light years. It brings the numbers down. At least four, we have some comprehension. If we want to see one star that's four, four light years away and one that's 10 and one that's 100, you at least can get some relative comparison. When you start talking about 43 trillion and 100 trillion and you know, hundreds of trillion, it's just, it blows your mind <laughs> and you really can't imagine those sizes. So it's one way to bring the numbers down. So a light year is one of those that we use. Another one that we use that isn't up on there is an astronomical unit. You'll see this one as well. An astronomical unit is just the Earth-Sun distance. Or about 93 million miles. Just the average distance between the Earth and the Sun. You'll see that one used as well at times. Just how far apart the Earth and the Sun are. It's real good. Doesn't work real well when you're talking about stars because it's a solar system distance. Works really well when we talk about the planets, how far away another planet is from us. It's convenient. When we start getting out into the universe, you'll see light years and millions of light years as much more reasonable distances. Okay. All right. Now when we look out at the sky, we see constellations. When we try to see constellations, you see those nice images or you hear those images, hear, those, uh, the, hear the stories of you know, the different uh, mythological figures and then you go out and look and try to find those figures there and you see a bunch of stars, right? You don't actually see the patterns. Well, that's pretty much what most people will see. You don't really, your mind tries to make patterns out of what you see on the sky. So this is, for example, this is the constellation of Orion. One of the ones that you probably, maybe a few of you at least, can recognize in the sky. It's up nicely in the early morning right now. So you can actually see it if you're up at like 5 in the morning. I'm an early morning person, so I see it all the time right now. You can see Orion very nicely in the morning sky. Um, Big Dipper is another one that a lot of people can actually recognize. But what we see 
when we look at things on the sky, when we look at those constellations, it looks like that's a nice grouping of stars. So you hear the science fiction shows or science fiction movies talk about going to this constellation or going to that constellation. That has no meaning. The constellations really only apply to what we're seeing here from Earth. If you were to travel a good distance away, but a thousand light years is a small fraction of our galaxy. If you were to travel out to some of these stars, the constellations would look completely different. Because what we're showing here is that even though the stars look like they're all in this nice pattern on the sky, these two up here in Orion, the two top stars, are very close, much closer to us than some of the stars in the belt and the two lower stars. They're much further away. And not just a little bit, but thousands of light years away. So if you were to travel out, say, towards the direction of Orion and end up out here someplace, you would find that these two stars are in that direction of Orion. The other stars are still off in this direction. So the constellation would no longer exist even traveling only a small fraction of our galaxy. You don't have to travel outside of our galaxy to do this. Only a small fraction of it would really change what you see in terms of constellations. So they look close together on the sky. That's what we see here on Earth. But they're really at widely separated distances. And the thing is we lose that distance aspect. When you look out at the sky, you can't really see if something's closer or further away. You have no perspective to be able to compare those stars. The only thing you can use to judge is maybe a star looks fainter. Maybe that means it's further away. But it doesn't really mean anything. So your mind automatically puts these stars on the surface of a great, great sphere surrounding us. And that's what we call the celestial sphere. You've seen it. You may not have known it by name, but you've seen the celestial sphere. If you ever go outside and look up, that's the celestial sphere surrounding, surrounding the Earth. That's where the stars appear to be. They look like, and this is what people thought thousands of years ago. There was this great sphere around the Earth that was spinning around the Earth once a day. Again, not big knowledge of physics, because you can imagine if you've taken any kind of physics or studying, try to imagine this gigantic sphere whipping around at 24 hours a day is even harder to explain than the Earth spinning at 24 hours a day, why the Earth does not rip itself apart. But you have this great sphere out here that's spinning around, and that explains all the motions of the stars every day. When you go out there and lie down at night, look up at the sky, it's the great celestial sphere turning and moving the stars across the sky. So that's what they seem to be, but really we're losing that whole three-dimensional aspect. Many of these stars are much, much further away. Some of them are closer. But even the stars, the planets, all look like they're attached to this great celestial sphere. So we use that. We use that celestial sphere as a way to measure positions. How do we tell where something is in the sky? How are we going to give somebody else, if we want to explain something to someone, a position, how do we give that as a comparison? We have to have some way to be able to tell them where it is, some set of coordinates. And that's what astronomers do, like we do here on Earth. We measure coordinates. We use latitude and longitude on Earth. To measure the coordinates. Right? So we can tell you latitude tells you how far you are north or south of the equator. Longitude tells you how far you are east, and west, east or west of 
uh, Greenwich, England, in this case, in our case. So those two, and if you know those two, we can get exactly any position on, on the Earth. So use your GPS, it gives you a specific latitude and longitude and says that's, that's where you are. It locates where you are by latitude and longitude. Every point on the Earth has this very specific one. I'm at one latitude and longitude. Each of you is at a slightly different one. Pretty close, but they're slightly different because we're at little bit different positions on the Earth. So we can do this on the sky as well. We can make measurements on the sky. Now we measure these. Latitudes and longitudes are measured in degrees. Right? We might say our latitude is 40 degrees north of the equator. Our longitude might be 80 some degrees west of the prime meridian. So we can just give some sort of angle me angular measure and determine then a position on the Earth directly. The same thing works on the sky. So it's much easier for trying to measure distances. You know, I can't hold a ruler up and tell you how far apart, how far apart uh, the Big Dipper there and Cassiopeia are. I mean, there's no way to hold up a ruler to measure those distances. Plus, as I showed you in the previous slide, that doesn't really have any meaning. How far away are they? Well, we're only seeing two of the three dimensions. We don't know how far apart they are, how far they are apart in distances outward. So I can't just measure that directly, but I can use angular measure to measure how far apart they are and to locate their positions in the sky. But in order to do that, I've got to give you a little bit of information on how astronomers measure angles. So we break down angles a little bit more than you may be used to. In a circle, first part I hope you know, a circle has about 300, has exactly 360 degrees. So a full circle is 360 degrees. That we're used to if we measure around the sky, go all the way around, we've gone 360 degrees. So we could break that down. Each chunk on the sky is about 1 360th of a degree. What does that mean? Well, the full moon, that one doesn't work too good. The full moon is about a half a degree in size. Pretty big object, full moon or the sun. Essentially the same size in the sky. They're both about half of a degree. So you think how small they are. If you took the full moon or the sun and put it along the horizon, you could stick 720 of them edge to edge all the way around the horizon and they would fit perfectly. That's how big the full moon or the sun are. That's pretty tiny for angles. So what astronomers need are much smaller angles and able to, in order to be able to measure small positions. Instead of saying it moved 0.000000, some number of zeros degrees, we use much smaller measurements. So we split each of these up into degrees is 60 arc minutes. So just like we split up an hour into 60 minutes of time, a degree is split up into 60 minutes of angular measure. So uh, unit types are the same. We're still talking about minutes, the 60s, so there's no, no shouldn't, hopefully not a lot of confusion there. But instead of talking about time, we're talking about angle. So 1 60th of a degree would be one arc minute, and the moon would be, or the sun would be about 30 arc minutes in size. Half a degree, 30 arc minutes. 
when we start looking at sizes of planets, sizes of galaxies, distances between them, motions of stars, we need these very small measurements to be able to do that. Now, one arc minute, because this isn't sufficiently small enough for astronomers, we've got to split that up even more. So one arc minute is 60 arc seconds. We split it down again, split it down again one more time. So in a degree, there's 60 minutes of arc. In each of those arc minutes, there's 60 seconds. Now we can get down to a way of measuring very, very small angles. And that's a lot of the motions that astronomers are looking for are in arc seconds or tiny fractions even of an arc second. So instead of using little teeny tiny fractions of a degree, they use a much more uh, consistent unit for what they need to do. So just because you'll see these uh, units, especially arc seconds, we'll see that come back a number of times throughout the course, I wanted you to have some idea of where it comes from. It's really just breaking down the degree into smaller and smaller portions. So get an idea of how tiny of an angle the measurement that is. The other thing, my last statement there, talks about the angular size. How big an object appears. It doesn't depend just on how big it is, how big it appears in the sky. I gave you the moon and the sun here, right? They're both half a degree in the sky. So they're both exactly the same size, right? Now, sun's a lot bigger. Sun is many, many times bigger than the moon. So why do they look exactly the same size to us in the sky? Well, the moon is very close. Only a couple hundred thousand kilometers away. Whereas the sun is much farther away, hundreds of thousands, many times further away. So even though the sun is so large, because it's at a great distance, it looks much smaller in the sky. And because of a coincidence of where we happen to be located and the distances of these, they actually appear to be almost exactly the same size in the sky. But how big it appears depends on exactly where you are. If you decided to take a trip and visit Mercury, going in much closer to the sun, and you, the sun would no longer be half a degree. It would be much bigger in the sky. It would appear to take a much bigger, sec, bigger chunk of the sky. If you took a trip out to Jupiter, five times away further than the Earth, it's going to be about one-fifth the size. It's going to be a much tinier sun, about one-fifth the size of it is. It's still going to be incredibly bright. It's not going to get that much fainter. It's going to be incredibly bright still. But it's going to be much smaller in terms of size. Because how big a thing appears depends on a combination of how big it really is and how far away it is. So we have great galaxies that you can see out there. We'll see images of. We see cluster nebulae today that we saw an image of. Well, they're really incredibly big in size. It's just because they're so far away that they look so tiny to us through our telescopes. So just kind of trying to break down there how we do the angular, how we do the angular measure. And that leads us to our actual units that we use. Latitude on Earth corresponds to declination on the sky. Latitude is how far you are north or south of the celestial equator, or the, of the equator, sorry, jumping ahead there. Declination is how far a star is north or south of the celestial equator. So the celestial equator is the great equator of the sky, divides the sky into two halves, a northern hemisphere and a southern. Just as the equator on Earth 
divides the earth into two portions? Well, declination just tells you how far you are away. So if you're north of the equator, you're in the northern hemisphere of the sky. If you're south of the equator, that'll be negative and you'll be in the southern hemisphere of the sky. Again, just like latitude and longitude, here we locate Washington, D.C. with some latitude, some distance above the equator, and some distance from another fixed point here, and it locates exactly where Washington, D.C. is. We do the same in the sky to pick out a star. We want to measure the star. It's so far above the celestial equator, so many degrees, and it's so far around from, again, another fixed point that we use. And that fixed point is has to be picked. There's no obvious point for it. On Earth, for latitude or for longitude, we use the meridian, the line that goes from the North Pole to the South Pole that happens to pass through Greenwich, England. That's just by convention that the peoples of different countries finally agreed that this is where we're going to measure latitudes and longitudes from. And at the time when this was done, England was the great sea power, so their meridian got chosen. Um, before that, you know, the French used one going through Paris, and the Spanish one through Madrid, and the Portuguese one through, I mean, everybody had their own measurements, and of course, they're not the same. So everybody was measuring coordinates differently. So they had to agree on one. So like that, astronomers have agreed that they're going to measure all of their second coordinates, what we call right ascension, from the position of the sun on the first day of spring. First day of spring is, all, spring is also called the vernal equinox. So that's just where the sun is on the first day of spring. That's where we measure everything from. And that is similar to longitude on Earth and is what we call right ascension. So you'll see maybe right ascension and declination in an astronomy article that you're reading perhaps. And that's exactly, exactly comparable to latitude and longitude here on the Earth. The only difference Astronomers have to do things different just to cause trouble. Well, not purposely, just by, or by tradition. These are both measured in degrees. They also measure, astronomers measure declination in degrees. They don't do it for right ascension. They don't measure it in degrees. They measure it in hours. So if you see right ascensions, you're going to see it in hours, minutes, and seconds. It's just the way astronomers have traditionally measured this, and it stays. And we'll see a number of those as we go through. There's some things that astronomers have used for tradition and have now been using for hundreds or thousands of years that, they can, that they'll continue to use. So a little bit of a difference there in that right ascension is measured in slightly different units. It's the same idea. I'm not asking you to do any calculations or details with you. I just want you to have some kind of idea how astronomers determine positions and measure those positions and the terms that they use for them. All right. So let's start looking at the Earth's motions now. How does the Earth appear to, how does the Earth move? Well, we've got a bunch of different motions that occur. Let's look at the first one, the easiest one. We see it every day, right? Sun rises and sets, and that's our day. That is a solar day. How long does that take? Well. 24 hours in a day, right? So it ex takes exactly 24 hours for one, one day to occur. Now that's not how long it takes the Earth to spin on its axis. And that's what the image is trying to show you here. A solar day is 24 hours exactly. That is how we define time and how we define the days on the Earth. So that is exactly how long it takes 
the solar day. The solar day is the day measured relative to the sun. So if we start off here, there's the sun, there's the earth, here is us pointing up at the sun at some time. If we come back one rotation later, the earth has spun around one time. There's this position, we haven't moved, we're holding our hand out there for 24 hours pointing at the same spot waiting for the sun to come back. Well, we waited 20, we waited, we waited, we're pointing in the same spot, we're pointing to the same spot relative to the stars, but the sun hasn't made it back there yet. The sun has not come back to that same spot yet. It takes a little bit more time. This is what we call, relative to the stars, is one sidereal day. This is relative to the sun. Then there is a sidereal day, which is 23 hours and 56 minutes, and that's relative to the stars. So we hold our hands up, the earth, is, hold our arm out, the earth has spun, it's gone all the way around, the same stars are coming back exactly into view where they were the day before. I know that's tough to see, you've got to use your imagination because the sun's out, but the same stars are coming back and it only took 23 hours and 56 minutes. This is really how long it takes the earth to spin once on its axis. A little bit less than a day. The earth was pointing out here, all these stars are in one position. 23 hours and 56 minutes later, they're exactly back in the same position. The earth has rotated once. What happened to the sun? The sun has moved. Well, the sun didn't move, the earth has moved. In that one day, the earth didn't sit still, right? We're moving, we're orbiting around the sun. So we've gone from here to here in that day. About 1 365th of the way around the sun, but it takes a little bit and it will take just a few more minutes, about four minutes, for that, our pointer, to actually, for the sun to come right back to exactly that same point again. It takes about four minutes longer. So the whole reason is that those two don't match up, that we have two different days, we have a solar day and a sidereal day, is because the Earth is moving. The Earth were just sitting still and spinning around, then the day would be 23 hours and 56 minutes long. But it's 24 hours because the Earth is orbiting around the Sun at the same time. So we have two different measures of a day. We can measure the day relative to the stars, we can measure the day relative to the sun. And that's why we see different stars at different times of night. If you go out at night now and see the stars there, don't look at anything, come back six months later and go out at the same time and look at the same area, you're going to see a completely different group of stars. Everything has changed because of this four minute difference. The stars are always moving very slightly relative to the sun or more realistically, the sun is what's doing the moving. The Earth is moving around and changing the perspective of the Sun, whereas the stars are really staying in the same spot. So here is that motion. Here we are moving around. Here's a bunch of constellations that everybody's heard of, right? The 12 constellations of the zodiac. Why are they so important? Oh, they're the brightest constellations with the brightest stars, right? Not really. Aries has no bright stars. Pisces really doesn't have any. Aquarius. Uh, Sagittarius, not too many. Libra. Um, Virgo, you've got one or two there, you've got a nice bright one in Le I mean, there's a handful of bright stars. Cancer is very, very uh, faint stars. Most of them don't have any bright stars, actually. Very few bright stars among them. But they're important because they are the path that the sun appears to take over the course of a year.
Again, it's the Earth moving, but it is, a, it is what the Sun appears to do. So these were the important constellations because they were in the right spot. They were in the right area that the Sun would happen to pass through Libra. There might not be any really bright stars there, so it wouldn't have caught your attention otherwise. But because it's in the path of the Sun, it became one of the constellations that we call the, Zod the Zodiac constellations now. We also give this another name astronomically. It's called the ecliptic. Ecliptic is the path the Sun appears to take over the course of a year. So how long, what is the Sun path does the Sun take? It's the, that's the ecliptic, how the, where, the, where the Sun appears to move. So the ecliptic is this line. It's actually the Earth's orbit around the Sun. But because we're sitting on Earth moving, we see it as the Sun appearing to move through this set of constellations. And they'll be the same ones from year, from year to year. Now, I mentioned the ecliptic. Look a little bit about seasons here. How are we doing? Oh, good. Uh, look a little about seasons here. The ecliptic is the path, the Earth's path. That's the path the Earth is taking around the sun. It is tilted. Now, you've probably heard that 23 and a half degree tilt. Probably heard that number at some point or other. That's the tilt of the Earth's axis. So that instead of being straight up and down, the Earth doesn't orbit around like that. It's not straight up and down. The Earth is actually tilted. So it's tilted at an angle, and that angle is 23 and a half degrees. If we weren't tilted like that, we wouldn't have any seasons. We did not have that tilt. If that tilt were straight up and down, it would always be the same general weather here. There'd be no cold, no extremely cold winter, no extremely warm summer, you wouldn't notice that. Yes, it would still be hotter near the equator. Yes, it would still be cooler near the poles. But you wouldn't get the changing seasons that we get here. Now, because of this tilt, the positions change. The position of the sun will change. You will get a northernmost point. You will get a summer solstice. That's as far north as the sun ever gets, the highest the sun gets in the sky, June 21st or so. That's when the sun is the highest in the sky, beating straight down on you. You'll get another one, you'll get a winter solstice when it's at its lowest point. So these are the different points, four different points of the beginnings of the seasons. Summer, when the sun is highest in the sky. Winter, when it's lowest in the sky. And then with the two cross, where it's right in the middle, you will get the equinoxes. And there is the vernal, spring, or autumnal for fall. So you get the spring and the fall equinoxes. So beginning of each season, June 21st, December 21st, September 21st, March 21st, Plus or minus a day or two, depending on how things have exactly worked out and the exact measurements. Now, because of these changes, because of these tilt, this is why we get seasons. Uh, typically, I do get a few people, when I ask the question about seasons, who will tell me about the distance from the Earth to the Sun. And the distance between the Earth and the Sun really makes no difference in the seasons. We do get closer and further away. We can be a million miles closer to the sun at some times and a million miles further away than average. So we do change our distance, but we are closest to the sun beginning of January. It's when we are closest to the sun. 
January 4th, 5th, we were at our closest to the sun. We're furthest away from the sun six months later, the beginning of July. So if we were just using distances, that doesn't quite explain why we'd get seasons. Because if that were the case, it would be nice and warm in January, and we'd be getting snow in July. What is causing the seasons is this tilt. When we're tilted towards the sun, two things happen. First of all, when we're tilted towards the sun, we're gathering the sunlight more directly. So this sunlight is now concentrated in a smaller area. It doesn't have to heat up that much of, it, that much of an area. So it can heat it up more, putting more energy into a little area. When the sunlight is spread out, when, the sun, when we're tilted away from the sun, the sunlight is spread out. And that same amount of sunlight, sun didn't get any warmer, sun didn't get any cooler, it stays exactly the same, is now stretched out over a much larger area. So the sunlight gets more concentrated in the summer, sunlight gets less concentrated in the winter, and the other thing that changes is the daylight. Right? We know that right now the sun rises at what? Six something in the morning? Right? If you're up that early. Sun sets when? When is it? Eight, nine o'clock at night now? What will it be at the end of the term? Won't be light at eight o'clock at night. Sun, will, sun won't, be right, won't be up at seven in the morning. You know, it might come to class here and it'll still be just coming out. It might be eight o'clock, eight thirty. When you're coming to class, it'll still be dark. So the daylight is also day length also changes. When the sun is higher in the sky during the summer, we get much longer days. So the sun has a lot more time to heat up the Earth. More time and more concentrated sun warms us up. So we're going to be much hotter in the summer when we're tilted a little bit towards the sun. In the winter, we're tilted away. We get the exact opposite effect. We've got to spread out that light a lot more. Look at the sun at noon in December. I know it'll be past your solar observations, but take a look at it. You see how low it is in the sky. That's at noon. That's as high as it's getting. And it, stretch, it has to spread all that light over a much larger area. So the Earth does not get as warmed up, and that will give us our winter. It also explains the opposite seasons in the southern hemisphere. When we're tilted, northern hemisphere is tilted towards the sun, southern hemisphere is tilted away, so they're going to get opposite seasons. If it just had to do with the distances, then it would really be the same. We'd get summer all across the Earth, and we'd get winter all across the Earth. So it's a combination of things that are really causing the seasons. And does the distance make a little bit of effect? Yeah, probably. It probably warms us up a little bit in our winter and makes our winter a little bit milder than it otherwise would be. Makes our summers a little bit milder than they would be in the northern hemisphere. Southern hemisphere would make them a little worse. But it really has no significant difference. It's not anything that's to do with what is causing the seasons to occur. And the time. Our tropical year is what we measure as our year. We're going to see a couple different year measurements as well. We'll see day, we've already seen different day measurements. We're going to see different year measurements, different month measurements, that there's several different times for each of these. All right, one more motion of the Earth to mention is what we call precession. We talked about the Earth rotating on its axis, the Earth moves around the Sun. Well, while it does this, all sorts of other things. The moon is pulling on it. All the other objects are pulling on it. So the Earth is like this top here. It's spinning on its axis. And it's moving in a big orbit around something. But it's also doing what we call precessing. And if you've watched a top spin, you see it spin. It spins really, really quickly. But where it points 
changes, that position changes slowly if you watch it. Right? The top spins real fast, but this part goes a lot slower. The Earth is spinning exactly like that. The Earth's axis is actually changing position over time. Very slowly, you look at the time frame there, to go from there, around to there again, that I just whipped around in a second, takes the Earth 26,000 years. But it is slowly changing. And that's changing where the Earth's pole points in the sky. Right now it points towards Polaris, the North Star, right? one, one most people have heard of. So it's pointing right about in that direction. But it doesn't always point there. Because of precession, thousands of years from now it will be pointing out here and Polaris will be nowhere near the star, near the pole. And in fact, no star will be. There won't necessarily be a star near the North Celestial Pole, making it harder uh, without you know, other, other modern equipment to really be able to determine directions in the sky. So that position will change. Will it come back there again? Yep, 26,000 years from now. If you come back in, what, the year 28,014, the Earth will be pointing at the pole star again. We'll be back there pointing again at the pole star. But during that time, it will slowly have gone through all these others, passed by other stars, close to other stars perhaps, and then back to where it is again. So another motion of the Earth, not just rotating on its axis, not just uh, spinning, uh, around, going around the sun, but it's also precessing as well. So we've got all sorts of motions that we have here. And I'm just going to pause there because I'm about out of time. I'm going to do that and I'll give you all my, all my distances and our speeds I was going to talk to you about today. I'll get to those on Friday uh, before lab. So any questions? Question, yes sir. Uh, does precession change the seasons? Does precession change the seasons? That's the next slide. <laughs> so if you can wait till Friday, I'll I'll give it to you then, but it, it changes what constellations will be visible in a season. It won't change the seasons themselves. It does not change the tilt. The tilt is still 23 and a half degrees. So it's the, that varies slightly too on some other scales, but it does not change the seasons directly in that, in that way. But I'll talk a little bit about more on that on, on Friday. Anything else? Have a good, good rest of the day.